Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites And the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. That sends the reading of the word of the Lord to us. Let us pray and ask for his blessing on us and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the fountain of all that is good and blessing, we come to you and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, fill us with the knowledge of truth. Direct us to Christ Jesus, the one who is exalted at your right hand. Lord, confront us where we need to be confronted. Give us hope where we despair, and give us life in Jesus Christ through your Holy Spirit as we hear your word preached. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our text for us at the end gives us this one word that I would like us to focus on as we look at this passage, the word fear. And I ask in our title of this sermon, and I would like to ask you now, who do you fear? Or maybe another appropriate question is, what do you fear? It may not always be an individual. It may be circumstances that you fear. Fear is actually one of the most powerful, important motivators that exist for mankind. Psychologists and sociologists know this. They study this as the fight-or-flight Uh, fight-or-flight response that we have, that when something fearful comes to us, we typically have two responses, to fight or to flight, to flee and run away. Fear is that feeling inside of us that we would like at all costs to avoid pain and suffering. 
We do not want to endure pain. We do not want to endure suffering. And so we fear it when its prospect comes. Whether that fear of suffering comes from an individual showing up in our lives, saying things or doing things we don't want, or when circumstances happen in our lives that we know are going to generate fear in our hearts, that we're going to have physical suffering, mental suffering, emotional suffering, or even spiritual suffering. This is something that I think this text drives home for us about who or what is it that we fear today. And I would like for us to see in a couple of short points this morning how we can understand this question and how we can answer this question appropriately of who do we fear and why ought we to fear those things or those persons. Our text begins with another instance of Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the structure that the book of Judges gives over and over to us that the people of Israel continue back. As we saw in chapter 2, that God raised up judges to execute judgment on those who oppressed Israel. But then as soon as that judge dies, what happens? The people return again back to doing evil just as they had done before. They don't seem to learn. And this is the third time that this stanza, this refrain comes back to us. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. As we have heard in weeks past in Deuteronomy, God had promised to them, if you are obedient to me, you will reap the blessings of the land. The earth will yield its produce. You will have many children and life will be good in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. But if you disobey me, if you turn and worship the gods of the nations around you and you forsake me, then curses, then judgment will fall upon you for your sins. Well, God has a purpose in these. We saw this in chapter 2, and we will see this this morning, that judgments have a purpose. We fear judgments. We don't want them to come in our lives. We don't want to face the consequence of our actions. We don't want this, and neither do the people of Israel, hence why they cry out. But we need to see that these judgments serve a purpose in the life of Israel so that we can understand the way the consequences that the Lord brings into our lives serve a a purpose. Now, we might be inclined to look at the circumstance the Israelites are going through as too severe. Lord, what you are doing to your people is too much. You've gone too far. These Midianites and Amalekites are from a southern portion in Israel, down below what is the modern state, and coming from the east, which is where is modern-day Syria, and they're coming up and devouring the land, eating it all up. As my wife and I were driving around this week and seeing all the crops that are now almost in full bloom, ready to be harvested, you can see the corn. Can you imagine if a nation came down upon us and just ate up all the corn ate up all the soybean and everything else that is growing, and then whatever was left, they destroyed. We would be devastated. And then you see the reaction of the Israelites. They flee into the caves. They make and and protect themselves as what they can and probably gathering whatever remains of leftover food they they could get, and they run into the caves to hide. Is this too severe for what God is doing to his people? punishing them or judging them for their sin, bringing upon what he had said that he would. I would propose to us that the reason we think this way 
that we might be inclined to think that this is too severe is because of our thoughts about who God is. We would only think it's too severe if we do not truly understand the God that they are turning away from, the God that they are sinning against. We don't understand how severe sin itself is, how severe it is to turn away from the Lord. And his judgments that he's bringing upon them are not meant to ultimately destroy them completely from the earth, but to awaken them to their sin, to awaken them to the evil that they are doing, to bring them to the point where they say, we need you, Lord, where they cry out. They're meant to awaken us to the greater reality of a judgment that is coming, a fear that we all ought to have, rightly. We often are like children when God's discipline in our life comes. When discipline comes, we think we're going to die. Now, sometimes that may be the case, but often the discipline and chastisements that we face in the circumstances of life for our foolish, sinful choices We're not going to die. We're going to, but we do think we're going to die. It's like when you discipline your child, as Proverbs 23 says, do not withhold the discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Children think that when they're being punished, they're going to die. That this is death. This is the experience of death. And we might look down upon children and think, you can get through this. But so often we are just like children. When God's discipline and judgments come upon us for our sin. But that is the instrument that we use in our lives, but that God uses in our lives to awaken us to the severity of our sin, to show us the path of death that we are walking down. And this is what is meant for Israel that God brought them very low. He wanted to show them who they really are in their hearts that he brought them to the point of poverty. And there's lessons here as Israel is brought to this humbled state. First of all, it is a lesson to us about riches. God had brought these people into the land. Here they are reaping the fruit and harvest of the land. And what do they do? They turn away from the Lord. Life is good. I don't give a thought for God. I don't teach my children. I don't spend time learning about the Lord. I have other things that are more important to me in my life. And in fact, they, as Judges shows, they turn to the gods around them. Maybe these will give me life. Maybe these will give me the happiness that it is that I want. And so when we become rich, we are secure in ourselves, as Proverbs 18 says. A rich man's wealth is his strong city like a high wall in his imagination. We think wealth protects us, that everything is good. We'll be all right. These sins, these evils that we give ourselves over to, we're going to make it through. We'll be fine. But it is a deception for us. We deceive ourselves, just as the Israelites did. They were deceived. Because what happens? In a few short years, seven years, their lives are completely turned upside down. All the blessings that they thought they had are wiped away, devoured, destroyed. 
God is showing to them the true state of their hearts. The things you trust in, the things you look for, for happiness and joy, can all be taken away in a moment. And do we see how much it took God to awaken the Israelites to their sin? Consuming all of their crops, consuming their livelihood. As the Proverbs also tell us, when the Lord disciplines a man he, with chastisements, he consumes like a moth what is dear to him. This is the way that God wakes us up. As he takes away the things that we love, we enjoy to show us the true state of our hearts. Our life is brief. Our lifespan is short. It is, as Ecclesiastes says, a vapor, a mist here today and gone tomorrow. And we place our confidence in things that not only do not last, but can be gone in a moment's notice. Like Israel, we turn to the idols of this world that we think will bring us joy and happiness. So how much better is it for us to learn now our poverty? This is what the Lord is doing with Israel. He is teaching them that indeed they are actually poor. By turning to the idols of this world, they themselves are poor people. They no longer have the riches of heavens in their heart. Their eyes are set upon the things of this earth. So the judgments, the disciplines that we face in this life They serve a purpose for us, to awaken us, to teach us, to instruct us what is truly important, what is truly enduring, and it is the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that is our second thing I would like us to see this morning, is the fear of the Lord. Now, Israel is laid low, they cry out to the Lord, and then the Lord does something interesting here. Is a little different from the other episodes we have seen in previous passages, where Israel cries out to the Lord, and the Lord immediately raises up a judge who comes to them and begins to deliver them. No, this time, something different happens. The Lord sends a prophet, and this prophet rebukes them. In fact, virtually all scholars look at this section that we're going to look at over the next several weeks of the story of Gideon as the centerpiece of the entire book of Judges. It is the fulcrum upon which everything turns. And we are now seeing here that God is saying, are you truly repentant? Yes, you are crying out to me, but what is it that you seek? And God is going to rebuke them through this prophet for their sins. As if to say, yes, I'm going to deliver you, but before I do, you need to hear this word of rebuke for your sin. And this rebuke may be summed up succinctly in verse 10, where God says two things to them. I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Israel had replaced the fear of the Lord with the fear of the Amorites. This does not necessarily mean that they were afraid of their gods, although it may mean that on some level, but it is more an all-encompassing view of one's life. You either fear the Lord or you fear other things, and so you serve and worship them. 
It is the most fundamental building block for obedience. Who is it that you fear? So I ask you today, who do you fear? Do you fear the Lord above all? Or do you fear other things in this life, in this world above all things? As the, as the prophet said to them, you fear these other gods and therefore you have not obeyed my voice. So how is it that these people and like them us are going to return to the fear of the Lord? Well, this fear comes in a couple different ways. There is first a fear that comes from our natural knowledge of God. Simply being creatures, living in this world, walking outside, being in creation, being humans, looking up to the heavens. We see the sheer majesty of who God is. That all people have access to this knowledge. That they can look outside. They can see the construction of their minds, their bodies, their souls. And realize and know that there is a God who has created them. That there is a majestic one. An all-powerful, all-sovereign God who has done this. And for us Christians, we have often forgotten this. We have often forgotten that our God is majestic. We have also forgotten his holiness. We have seen above that God judges those who do evil, in particular his people. But we see God's majesty manifested everywhere in his goodness to all humans, to all his creation, that God is the sole source of goodness to everything that exists. And every good thing that the creatures on this celestial ball enjoy comes from God himself. And nothing good can be found apart from God. Our modern society has slowly lost this natural knowledge of God. This fearful living in the, in the awareness of, that we are created. The world for the modern man is now small. In fact, we can travel around the world in a few hours in less than a day, something that was virtually impossible to travel around in less than a couple months' time many generations ago. The world is now at our fingertips. In the place of a vastness of before us, it is now so small and tiny we can, in a sense, carry around it with us in our pockets. And is it any wonder that we often have this sense of a loss of dread? of awesomeness, of mightiness. This is why we do things like going on walks outside, standing underneath the stars, looking at beautiful things in this world to capture for us the sense of wonder. But our world is so small to us now. And so is it any wonder that for the world around us and for ourselves that everything seems small, including God? But God has manifested his majesty in what he has made. But there is more than this. That is the first form of fear. A fear of understanding and knowing who it is who has made us. But natural knowledge cannot lead us all the way. That is knowledge that is accessible by all men. 
But even mankind, mankind around us, just like the Israelites, just like the Amalekites, just like the Midianites, they suppress this knowledge. They don't want it because they understand that when they do those things that God does not approve, they have in their hearts, their consciences, the law of God written on their hearts, and they say, I don't want to be held accountable to this majestic being that lives out there, so I will throw it out. I will make my own rule, as we heard from Proverbs. I myself am the standard. I weigh what is right and good. And so they don't worship God. They don't honor him or give him thanks as they ought. But in this passage, God reveals another kind of knowledge that we all must have. It is a knowledge that far exceeds what we learn from this creation. It is a different kind of majesty, if you will. It is what God begins and says to them. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. This is what the Israelites had forgotten. That this God, this majestic one, who rules over all creation and oversees and governs a rebellious humanity, he was their God. The nations around them turned to all kinds of idols, false gods, worshiping and serving them. But God had taken Israel, gathered them from the reaches of the earth, and brought them and said, I am your God. It is this knowledge that is supposed to shape the people of God. That the one true living God is our God. And for you Christians who know and believe in Jesus Christ, do you know that the sovereign, omnipotent God is your God? He is the true God. He is your God. Do you know that the one who supplies this world with everything that is good, that he is your God? And do you know that as he was a father to Israel, so he is a father to you, who cherishes you, who looks down from heaven upon you as his beloved child and care? Do you know that that is what it means for God to be your God? But there's something, one more thing beyond this that will give us the true fear of the Lord that we need. It is not just that God has made himself our God, but it is who God has made to be his people. It is knowing that I, like Israel, am worthy of judgment. I, like Israel, am worthy of condemnation. I, like Israel, am a sinner who deserves to have everything good stripped away from me. All of my health, all the good things of this life, that not an ounce of goodness ought to come to me from God. Because I, like Israel, have done evil in the sight of the Lord. 
It is the knowledge that I, one who, like Israel, have seen the great acts of the Lord presented to me in the gospel and yet have continually wandered away from it. Again and again, turned away from the Lord. Yet God reminds his people and reminds us today, I have chosen you. You belong to me. And God reminds them of this, of the five different things that he tells them, of his choice of them, making them his own. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, verse 8, I led you up, or I brought you up, and I brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and from all those who oppressed you, and I drove them out. And I gave you their land. Israel had forgotten their Savior. Israel had forgotten the one piece of knowledge that they needed above everything else to know that God was their Savior. I brought you up. I brought you out. I delivered you. I drove them out and I gave you land. I have done all of this for you. An undeserving people. And that knowledge was meant to drive them to a proper fear of the Lord. See, fear of punishment is powerful, but it is only so powerful. It cannot change the heart, ultimately. We know this with our children, right? We can discipline them for their sinful choices, But what we really want is for their hearts to change, to transform, or they obey us. But this is what we want. A life and a heart that is transformed, that does not obey out of fear of punishment, but out of a fear of something else. Remember, fear is this prospect of enduring suffering and pain and hardship and loss. Fear of punishment is not where true obedience is found. And that is not what the Lord is seeking from Israel, though he is trying to awaken them. He wants to point them to the true source of fear that they need in their lives, the true source of fear that you and I need in our lives. It is a fear that is born from seeing the salvation of God worked for us. And seeing his majesty And holiness worked on our behalf to see his power and what he has done in Jesus Christ. To see that what he has done for Israel in a picture, in a figure, or as the New Testament calls it, a shadow of the things to come, that he has done this in Jesus Christ. But he brought up Christ from the dead. He brought him out of the grave. He delivered him from his enemies by putting him in heaven. And he has now set Christ at the throne of God in the heavenly places, inheriting the eternal life that he now can give from heaven. And now Jesus Christ gives this. He gives this freely to sinners, freely to those who say, I have nothing. 
I am a sinner. I'm unrighteous. I'm just like Israel. It is the fear of a loving father who has shown love to his wayward children in Jesus Christ. That is the fear that God is seeking from Israel and God is seeking from us. It is not a fear of punishment, but a fear of reverence and a fear of love. The fear that says, I do not want to lose my Lord. That is what I am afraid of. That I would be separated. That I would do anything to offend my God. Because he's the one who has loved me. He has given everything for my sake. Even giving his own beloved son for me. God has emptied the treasures and storehouses of heaven for my sake. So what Israel was to see and what we are to see is the love of God for his people. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. In the words of John Calvin, that we would honor and obey him as master, although there were no hell. We would honor and obey him even if there was no hell. Even if there were no punishment, we would revolt at the very idea of dishonoring our Lord. And that kind of fear is only born as we see the love of God given to us in Jesus Christ. It is in knowing his son who has accomplished the true exodus knowing the depth of Christ's love for us, that he calls us his brothers and sisters, wayward children, calls us his bride. That is the fear that will banish the wrong fear of punishment because we see Christ has taken that punishment for us. It will fill us with a fear of reverent love. This is the one whom I wish to honor because he has loved me and given himself for me. A fearful love that desires to have the Lord near us because he's a gracious and merciful God. And God has said this clearly, perfectly, and loudly in Jesus Christ. I am the Lord, your God. That those words are true for us today in Jesus Christ. So Christian, today, if you trust in Jesus Christ, this is true for you, that Jesus Christ is the Lord and he is your God. And you see his heart, you see his love, you see his kindness. And if you do not know Jesus Christ today, believe in him and the love of Christ that he has for his bride will be true for you today. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks for your inestimable gift of Jesus Christ for our sake. Lord, we scoff, we, we dread, we run away from the punishments and the judgments that come our way, the consequences of our sin. But Lord, would you use them to teach us, to discipline us, 
to turn our eyes away from the sinful things we pursue, and, but instead to see the salvation that you have given to us in Christ. And fill our hearts with the hope that Christ is alive from the dead, reigning forevermore at your right hand. And we will one day join him because he has been raised to life and he has been given the power to raise us to life as well. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.